Welcome to the 71st episode of Rising Tide, the Ocean Podcast. This is David Helvarg, and my co-host is one-time NOAA employee and founder of the Inland Ocean Coalition, Vicki Nichols-Goldstein. Welcome, everyone. Today, we're speaking with Undersecretary of Commerce for Oceans and Atmosphere, Dr. Rick Spinrad, better known as the Administrator of NOAA, the National Oceanographic and Atmospheric Administration. Most people think of NOAA as home of the National Weather Service, although it's also the nation's leading agency for ocean science, conservation, and exploration, as well as at the forefront of U.S. science analysis and reporting on climate change. NOAA has 12,000 employees, including a uniform NOAA Corps of ship drivers, 11 satellites, and a $7 billion budget. Over the next five years, NOAA will also be directing an additional $6 billion of funding for ocean and coastal climate activities under the infrastructure and inflation reduction laws passed by the Biden administration. But before we get into all of that, you grew up in New York, as did I. My first connections to the sea were swimming at Jones Beach as a kid, visits to the Coney Island Aquarium, and fishing at Sheepshead Bay. What first got you interested in the ocean? Well, thank you for having me, David. And I'll, I'll say it was very similar to your experience. In fact, some of my fondest memories were out at the, the aquarium on Coney Island. But it goes back to the New York City public school system. And as a young student there, I had the opportunity in eighth grade to have a teacher who was teaching us earth sciences as part of a general science curriculum and challenged us to do a project around ocean sciences, which was a pretty new field back then. And I decided I was going to build an echo sounder, which is, of course, the early version of the modern acoustic uh, equipment that we use to measure and map the ocean floor. And so I had at my disposal, of course, some incredible resources, mostly in the form of Columbia University's Lamont Doherty Earth Observatory, which back then I think was the Lamont Doherty Geological Observatory. And I went up there and talked with some grad students and got all sorts of ideas and built an echo sounder. And it failed miserably. It didn't work at all. But this is where the story gets interesting because the teacher, Mr. Rabinowitz, was such a good teacher that instead of saying, hey, you tried, you failed, move on to something else, he said, well, why did it fail? What would you do differently? And it sounds a little bit trite, but that was the hook. That was what got me so interested in the oceans. And I was always interested primarily in the physical aspects. How does energy move around in the oceans? How do tides and waves and currents work? And eventually uh, developed a much, much broader love for and passion for things oceanographic. But it really was there in eighth grade when I was the ripe old old age of 13 or 14 that I first developed a, a passion for understanding the ocean. And then did you study it in college? I did. I went to Johns Hopkins and got a degree in earth and planetary sciences uh, with a focus on oceanography. And, and I've got to share that back then, uh, it was highly interdisciplinary, the training that I received. And at the time when I received my degree, I thought I wasn't quite at the same level as my peers who majored in math or physics or biology or chemistry. And in fact, when I went to grad school, I felt I had some catching up to do. And so for many years, I felt that degree in earth and planetary sciences was not a particularly useful degree. And then I realized what it did was it taught me, as I said, I was initially passionate about the physical aspects of ocean sciences. It taught me about the integral coordination and connection between physics, biology, chemistry, geology, social sciences, 
and so went on for a traditional graduate degree in physical oceanography and then geological oceanography, but always by virtue of that undergraduate training in earth and planetary sciences, had a deep, deep appreciation for the inherently transdisciplinary nature of ocean sciences. And your job seems absolutely enormous and so timely. So can you tell us a little bit more about your responsibilities and who you interact with and some of your visions for what you want to accomplish? First of all, I'll say I think I have the best job in the U.S. government. It is (laughs) uh, a fascinating position to be the administrator of NOAA. I'm the 11th uh, administrator, going back to Bob White, who was our first administrator uh, over 50 years ago. Many people know one aspect or maybe a couple aspects of what we do at NOAA. Uh, obviously, uh, many of your listeners are familiar with what we do in ocean conservation through management of marine sanctuaries and estuarine research reserves. Uh, but we also carry out the uh, Uh, highly technical aspects of mapping and charting the ocean through the National Ocean Service. We have the Weather Service, and almost everybody knows what the Weather Service does. We have the National Marine Fisheries Service, which has regulatory responsibilities for uh, managing marine fisheries, as the title suggests, and also ensuring that we carry out our responsibilities with respect to protected species and habitat as well through legislation like the Marine Mammal Protected Act and the Endangered Species Act. Those are the three primary thrusts of what we do, but supporting that, you can't do any of that without the facilities, which means the satellites, the ships, the aircraft. And so we have a a satellite data and information service known as NESDIS. And of course, we have a very strong research component, our Office of Oceanic and Atmospheric Research. And as you indicated, David, in your introduction, we also have a officer corps. It's one of the eight uniformed services in the United States. We have about 330 officers in that corps who fly the planes, drive the ships, and also operate throughout the, uh, the line offices that I allude to. The interesting thing, if I can just add on one more point, is it's easy to look at the the, the different components, the weather service, the ocean service, the fishery service, what connects all of these? And nowadays, as you pointed out, Vicki, what is so timely about the job is that all of the attention associated with climate change and its implications on society, on lives, on livelihoods, on lifestyles, they come together under the rubric of being a climate-ready nation. So I'm really excited. In fact, I I came out of retirement for this job because I was so excited by the prospects of developing robust, authoritative, reliable, accessible climate products and services that can serve everyone in the country, from the most vulnerable communities to big corporations to individuals trying to make life and lifestyle choices. And we are so well positioned, in conjunction with many other parts of the federal government, to really build a whole new set of, of uh, products and services for, uh, for the American public. And again, but before we get into the ocean climate connections, which are fascinating and crucial, it's kind of when I wrote my book, Rescue Warriors, about the Coast Guard. People sort of know the Coast Guard for search and rescue and don't know of all its other mission sets. And I feel the same way about NOAA. I mean, if you're a recreational diver like we are, you might know the marine sanctuaries. Everybody's sort of familiar with the Weather Service and the Hurricane Center. Uh, if you're a fisherman, you may have 
issues or conflicts with the National Marine Fisheries Service, but you're also dependent on the Weather Service. I think just the diversity is something that people don't appreciate about NOAA. Yeah, absolutely. And, and, and you still haven't even hit it all. I mean, one of our big responsibilities is space weather forecasting. Most people have no idea, first of all, even what space weather is. But it's part of our remit. We like to talk about having a responsibility from the surface of the sun to the bottom of the ocean and everything in between. But if you think about it, it touches. I'm sorry. Could you tell us briefly what space weather forecasting is? Yeah. Ask as well. <laughs> so you've probably heard of solar storms, uh, more technically known as coronal mass ejections, where you get charged particle ejections from the surface of the uh, surface of the sun. Uh, these travel through the uh, through space and interfere electromagnetically with our atmosphere, with our electrical grids. And so we've had some very severe electrical storms uh, responsible for, or solar storms, I should say, responsible for major power outages across large portions of the hemisphere. And so we've got to have a capability of detecting when you see one of these solar storms and predicting if it will hit uh, the earth, when and with what magnitude. So we have major observational systems way out in space, uh, and then uh, rather sophisticated predictive models, not unlike we do for more traditional weather patterns, if you will. But yeah, that's a, that's a, there is an operational space weather prediction center that is part of NOAA's portfolio. And of course, we have the National Marine Sanctuaries Program, the National Estuarine Research Reserve, and all of those coastal kind of national parks of the ocean. And I love to let people know that these are so absolutely important to habitats, to the environment, and also when it comes to protecting more and more, hopefully 30% by 2030, um, to really keep our oceans healthy. Um, so I just wanted to jump in and ask, you are working with a lot of money, which is super exciting, going into science and service and stewardship, you know, around the ocean and climate. What do you hope to accomplish with these millions of dollars? Or maybe I should say billions of dollars. Yeah. Well, the first thing I'll point out is this has been extraordinary. The passage of two major pieces of legislation, the bipartisan infrastructure law and then the Inflation Reduction Act, the latter of which is the most significant climate legislation our nation has ever passed. Uh, and for us at NOAA, it's interesting. I've been in the government in various forms since the Reagan administration. And I remember when I was a baby program manager uh, working over in the Navy, they taught me rule number one, there is no new money. Well, it's a different world right now. These two pieces of legislation represent new money for many of us, including NOAA. In total, at NOAA, it's over $6 billion of new money. But I'll tell you what's interesting too, is I think, and, and don't get me wrong, we're extremely grateful for, and we'll be uh, managing these resources very effectively, we could easily spend many times that on the challenges that we've got associated with basically adaptation and resilience. So a lot of the climate change discussion right now is tied to both mitigation, think in terms of decarbonizing, increasing renewable energy usage, reduce the amount of carbon emissions that are going down, mitigate the carbon uh, sources, if you will. And then adaptation. And the argument I like to make with respect to adaptation is even if tomorrow we got to net zero on all of our construction, energy utilization, transportation, 
we would still be dealing with sea level rise that will result in sea level rise of about 12 inches off Norfolk by 2050. So what do we do now to adapt to and become more resilient to the climate change that's going to manifest as sea level rise, ocean acidification, uh, severe storms, uh, many of those impacts that we're seeing uh, increasingly evident. And so we're going to take these resources, the bipartisan infrastructure law, for example, and apply it to a concept that we call climate-ready coasts, which is part of a broader climate-ready nation. And the basic concept in climate-ready nation is that if we do this right, if we understand how climate is going to impact things like coastal resilience, how coasts can weather the storm, literally, of rising seas and increasing intensity of storms, then we will benefit and prosper. And that's uh, that's somewhat radical thinking these days, where a lot of the concern is about how are we going to live in a different mode, and it will be a different mode. We believe that with knowledge, we can actually benefit and prosper, and that's at the heart and soul of this climate-ready nation concept. So what are we going to do? We look at it in terms of a few categories. So one is simply the data and services. How can we make sure that we can, in a whole-of-government way, get to the climate crisis by providing people what I call the environmental intelligence, the information that they need to make decisions. And that could be an emergency manager, it could be a city planner, it could be a reinsurance or an insurance underwriter. So we need to make sure that we're spending money to get them climate data and services. On the climate ready coast side, there's a number of things. You already alluded to programs for conservation like the National Estuarine Research Reserve Systems. It's interesting. There's a body of literature, scientific literature, that shows that marine protected areas could account for up to 20% of the carbon reduction needed to make sure we get to the 1.5 degree goal of the Paris Agreement. So marine protected areas do a number of things. They obviously foster ecosystem health, ecosystem diversity, and abundance. They serve as nurseries for ecosystems. They also serve as important controllers on carbon. And of course, this administration, the Biden-Harris administration, has uh, issued a directive that we conserve 30% of our lands and waters. And for us at NOAA, that means our sanctuaries program, and it also means our National Estuary Research Reserves. But that's not enough. So the other things we're going to do with uh, bipartisan infrastructure law um, are things like co-invest with our partners, the National Fish and Wildlife Foundation, uh, to make sure that we have increased the investments associated with nature-based infrastructure projects. What the heck is a nature-based infrastructure project? Well, it's things like building seagrass beds or marshlands or mangroves, build them out to protect the coastal environments, to... Uh, address the challenges we're going to face with rising sea level. And we're also going to spend money on fisheries and protected resources. And probably one of the most important things we're going to do here, which is also consistent with the Biden-Harris administration objective, is make sure that tribes and some of the most vulnerable and oftentimes neglected communities are the beneficiaries of these investments. So uh, looking at things like Pacific Coast salmon recovery, fish passage. You may have recently heard the news about the removal of four dams on the Klamath, Klamath River. That's part of a fish passage effort to make sure that we can bolster the populations and make healthier the ecosystems 
in this case, in the North Pacific. It's interesting. I've been on the front lines with CAL FIRE. It's interesting that along with the coast and ocean, NOAA is going to be researching a wildfire response. We've only recently discovered a lot of interesting facts about the ocean. So as you know, as a result of climate change and all the carbon we've been pumping into the atmosphere, we've been putting a lot of heat. Basically, what we've been doing is allowing heat to accumulate in the system. That's what the the greenhouse effect does. And 90% of that increased heat is in the oceans. And, And people wonder, well, how much heat are we talking about? So heat's a form of energy, right? And we can equate that heat with something like an atomic bomb. And we have been putting the heat equivalent of two Hiroshima atomic bombs per second into the environment for the last 40 years. And most of that has gone into the oceans. So yeah, very serious implications with respect to how the oceans are changing. And And I would point out, it's just fundamental physics. When you put that much heat into a system, it manifests in some way. And in this case, it's manifesting in the form of extreme storms, extreme events. Here's another interesting factoid for you. 40 years ago, we would see a $1 billion disaster, natural disaster in this country, roughly every 80 to 85 days. Now it's every 18 days. And that's been true for the last two or three years. And it's been going up over the last three or four decades. So all of this energy, all of this heat uh, ends up uh, residing, if you will, in the oceans and then coming out in the form of very strong, very powerful tropical storms, for example. That's an amazing analogy. Thank you for sharing that because people really don't understand that the, the astronomical amounts of heat that are going into the ocean. But before we move on, I just want to jump back so our listeners really understand blue carbon. Can you talk a little bit more about blue carbon and what we need to preserve in that framework? Sure. I think most listeners would uh, easily get and understand and learn from early childhood that forests, for example, are storage vehicles for carbon. And you look at a tree and it represents stored or sequestered carbon, which is why burning down forests or cutting down forests represents an an unfortunate reintroduction of carbon into the atmosphere. In the same way, the trees of the ocean, the uh, forests of the ocean, whether it's seaweed or higher trophic levels or mangroves or seagrasses represent storage mechanisms for carbon. The other thing, and this is where marine protected areas come in, is a lot of carbon is actually stored in the sediments. And so if you're constantly stirring up the sediments through whatever activity, there is a school of thought that says that you may be reintroducing that carbon back into the water column and then ultimately back into the atmosphere and and exacerbating the problem. So protecting the sediments, conserving the area, building out seagrasses, marshes, mangroves, all represent blue, that is to say, marine forms of carbon storage. And that's why we call it blue carbon. Noah has many examples of how doing right with living shorelines and the like helps the economy as well. Let's not forget that Noah sits in the Department of Commerce. 
and actually my title, I have two titles. One is as NOAA administrator and the other is as an undersecretary of commerce for oceans and atmosphere. So I take very seriously this potential for climate, climate services, ocean, ocean services to translate into economic development and jobs. And in fact, that's one of my main objectives as NOAA administrator is to build out what I call the new blue economy, which is the economy that for which information and data are the currency. The use of knowledge about the oceans to stimulate new products and services. So for let's take sea level rise as an example, where as a public agency, we are going to put out products that tell you generally what's going to happen in sea level rise in different parts of the country. But let's imagine that you are a marina developer in Virginia, and you want a very specific tailored product that says, yeah, but this is where I want to build in this very specific area. Tell me exactly what I need to know about sea level rise and how it will affect my business interests here. And that's where there's a market, there's an economy, there's an opportunity for creative entrepreneurs to say, just that as they did with commercial weather development many years ago, that we can take the public product, add value to it, develop derivatives, and then provide this as a service through new businesses to support the interests of very specific users. And it's it, if you think about it, it you could make the same argument about the shellfish industry, shellfish aquaculture industry, which really needs some very specific tailored products that serve their needs for their particular area of the coast and their particular species that they're growing. So they may turn to someone and say, can you give me a forecast of ocean acidification for my specific hatchery here off the coast of uh, Willapaw Bay in, in uh, Washington, for example? This is what we call the new blue economy. It's based on the incredible capability we've got for ocean observations that we didn't have 20 years ago. And also the improved understanding that we have for predicting how things are going to change in the ocean. So the aquaculture industry, the shellfish industry has become like the indicator species for ocean acidification. Blue Frontier, we've worked with the Center for the Blue Economy to promote not only 30% of the ocean protected, but 30 gigawatts of offshore wind, which is now in process. When you have a rapid transition like this from generating fossil fuel energy in the Gulf to offshore wind along the eastern seaboard where it will predominantly take place. What's the role of an agency like NOAA in terms of assuring that this kind of new green power also doesn't interfere with the marine ecosystems that you're stewarding? We have several different roles and offshore wind is an area that we've been aggressively working now for the last couple of years. And in fact, most of the hiring that you're going to see in my agency over the next a uh, year or two is going to be, first of all, facilitated by things like the bipartisan infrastructure law, and secondly, focused on a lot of these activities, because we have several roles to fulfill, uh, one of which is regulatory in nature. And so if you decide that you want to bid on a, on a lease for an offshore wind installation, the law requires that you demonstrate that you will not adversely affect or impact the environment 
that you will do no harm to marine mammals, for example, or endangered species. And we are the custodians, if you will, of that responsibility. So we need to make sure based on the best science available that your application for the permit to build is consistent with the intent of the Marine Mammal Protection Act and the Endangered Species Act, and also the Coastal Zone Management Act, depending on where you're building. And so there's a siting regulatory responsibility. I would also add part of the siting is if you're a developer, you want to put your wind farm where the wind is. More importantly, you want to put your wind farm where you know the wind will be under changing conditions of climate change. And so that, again, is where NOAA as an authoritative source fits in because we have some of the best predictive models that say, hey, this is what the wind patterns are going to look like seasonally over the next 10 years, 20 years. And then ultimately, we have to think about our role in the decommissioning of these facilities too, as we do for oil rigs in the Gulf of Mexico. So we have a number of different responsibilities. And you brought up a really interesting point, David. I, I have a lot of fun going around the country asking people what their definition of 30 by 30 is. And of course, there's some people who say, oh, it's 30 gigawatts by 2030. And then there's others who say, yeah, it's conservation of 30% of our lands and waters by 2030. And the answer is, yes, you're right to both of them. So how do we chew gum and walk at the same time? How do we conserve 30% of our lands and waters? And at the same time, make sure that we are in an environmentally sustainable manner, building out this burgeoning industry of offshore wind. So Rick, I want to go back because ocean acidification is very important. And part of getting all of these windmills up along the coast, as opposed to offshore oil and gas, is a way to reduce our fossil fuels. So what is NOAA doing? I know there's some funding dedicated to ocean acidification. Um, can you talk a little bit more about that and what your goals are in that arena? Sure. So there's a number of aspects of ocean acidification that are um key to our research activities. Early on, I remember when Dick Feely first briefed me on ocean acidification, and many consider Dick as the sort of father of the science of ocean acidification. He's a researcher out at our Pacific Marine Environmental Lab in Seattle. And one of the first questions was, is it just on the coast of the state of Washington or is it elsewhere? So getting a sense of the magnitude of the issue, where is ocean acidification happening, uh, how uh, how extreme is it? Uh, what are the patterns geographically and over time throughout the world? So part of this is the fundamental mapping, if you will, and observations of the extent of ocean acidification. The second element is getting a handle on its predictability. So we know about it now under different scenarios like the uh, Intergovernmental Panel on Climate Change scenarios for climate change in the most extreme case or business as usual case, what do we think will happen? In case where we dramatically reduce uh, atmospheric carbon or carbon emissions, what do we think will happen with respect to ocean acidification? So that's a, a real challenge of integrating the biogeochemistry models and the physical models of the atmosphere and the ocean and making sure they're adequately coupled. So a lot of tough challenges there. And then I would say the third key element is understanding the impacts, the ecological impacts. Uh, what happens to coral? What happens to uh, pteropods that feed stock for salmon, for example? What happens to uh, other species as a consequence of changing 
the pH of seawater. Um, and, and it's not merely a matter of taking samples in a laboratory and subjecting them to increasingly more acidic conditions. It's really understanding the, the, the predator-prey relationships, the transport mechanisms, the impacts, because it's not just acidification. You got to consider temperature in there as well and other effects. And so I would say it boils down to a lot of science around understanding the magnitude, the distribution, the predictability, and the impacts. And then the more important question is, well, what do we do about it once we understand what these impacts are and the consequences? And right now, I think mostly what we do is have a good understanding of where the impacts are going to be most urgent. But there are some uh, sort of mitigating uh, efforts, if you will. And the, the classic story of what happened with the Pacific oyster populations, which were the uh, canary in the gold mine, so to speak, right. <laughs> on ocean acidification. And it's an interesting story. I've had the chance to talk with several of those shellfish hatchery owners. And first they thought they were seeing a uh, temperature effect, then maybe a virus. They finally figured out what it was. And now they've installed sensors to give them an early warning as to whether they're seeing changes in pH of their water intake. And when they do see this or have a better prediction, they can take the steps to either buffer the water or grow the oyster um, seed and other conditions. And so they've learned how to respond immediately to changes in pH. And, and that's the kind of adaptive mechanisms that we're going to have to build into the food security systems that we've got. Now, some things are, I wouldn't go so far as to say hopeful, but some things have changed for the better. One of the responsibilities of NOAA is uh, through the National Marine Fisheries Services overseeing U.S. fish stocks and under reforms to the Maine Fisheries Act that took place in 96 and 2006, fish stocks, that is edible marine wildlife, is actually making a comeback. It's it's more sustainable in the U.S. How does NOAA work with that model at a global level where there's still industrial overfishing that's taking down a lot of that marine wildlife? The short answer to your question is rely heavily on things like the regional fisheries management organizations, the RFMOs, around the world, which are the places where governments get together with uh, representative in uh, interests, for example, from indigenous people and talk about what needs to be done for management. It's a very tough environment because there are the challenges of sustenance fishing. There's the challenges of industrial fishing. But I actually have great faith in the regional fisheries management construct and the international agreements to at the very least, identify where the rough spots are and try to, try to find solutions. I think the more insidious problem, and your question alluded to it, David, is in what we call IUU, illegal, unreported, and unregulated fishing, which by some measures is an extraordinarily large component of the decimation of the stocks that you alluded to. And I'm encouraged that just in the last several months, and I know you interviewed Assistant Secretary Monica Medina a, a little while ago, and she uh, was able to speak in much more uh, eloquent terms than I about all the work that's being done. But there are now international agreements, both for with respect to the fishing and the illegal labor practices associated with IUU fishing. Uh, and there are some policies that have actual meat in them in terms of um, port state measures and keeping 
uh, countries from being able to bring their catch into other countries if they have found to have been harboring or supporting illegal, unreported, and unregulated fishing. And I'm a technocrat, uh, deep at heart. I honestly believe that some of the more sophisticated uh, methods and techniques that we now have for making observations out in the oceans will help us find out who the uh, malign agents are involved in IUU fishing. And th with that, we should be able to dramatically reduce that impact on the, the, the stocks that you alluded to. Now, I recently was visiting the, uh, we did a media training for hundreds of people who were gathered in Florida for a uh, conference on coral reef restoration. But of course, the conference was interfered with by a hurricane. So part of the funding now, NOAA is a great ocean agency, but like the Coast Guard, you've got a lot of your facilities on the front lines right in harm's way. So part of your funding, new funding, I gather, is going to be to uh, harden and upgrade your shore facilities and also uh, upscale your hurricane uh, hunter aircraft, which are very famous. You've said it very well. I mean, we're right there on the front lines. We're in the communities. NOAA has 620 facilities around the country, many of those in, in uh, vulnerable positions in coastal environments. And it's not just the, the, the dramatic storms, if you will. We have a facility in Utkiakvik, uh, Alaska, uh, the Barrow uh, Observatory, uh, which we had to basically redesign because of the uh, loss of permafrost. And so these climate-induced effects, whether it's as manifested in storms or loss of permafrost are affecting us like it's affecting so other communities, so many other communities. And you're exactly right. We've got uh, resources in the bipartisan infrastructure law. Uh, you'll probably see them play out in the Inflation Reduction Act that allow us to get, first of all, repair some of the facilities that were damaged, uh, but also get access to additional uh, platforms. You brought up the hurricane hunters. We have two. Uh, and they're very old. Uh, they are, well, we have two of the traditional hurricane hunters. We also have a, a, a Gulfstream aircraft that flies over the hurricanes. The traditional P-3 aircraft actually fly through the hurricanes. Those aircraft are over 50 years old, those P-3s. And because we're seeing so many storms now, uh, we actually cannot cover all the territory, literally cannot cover all the territory. So we're, we're making the argument that to do this job right, um, it may cost tens or hundreds of millions of dollars to acquire the aircraft that we need and the crews and all the support facilities. But think about that when one Hurricane Ian, for example, can cost tens of billions of dollars of damage. If we can improve the track and the intensity forecast for that hurricane, by using additional capabilities like the hurricane hunters, uh, we can easily offset that cost by many, uh, by a factor probably of five to 10 to one in terms of saved lives and protected property. It sounds like from all of the acts that have been passed, the, the couple and all the money that's going into the US, it's, it's, I'm feeling really optimistic. I wanted to ask you, you just came back from COP, as you mentioned, and how are you feeling regarding your collaborations with nations around the world to work together to address climate change and ocean protection priorities? I'm optimistic, uh, in short, and I think I'm a realist. 
and the you asked specifically about the relationships that we have with other countries um, i'm excited about the fact that many uh, countries who have similar kind of capabilities to ours uh, are eager to partner with us and so we see that in agreements like the all atlantic ocean research alliance that was just signed um, several months back this this past summer uh, we see it in terms of the bilateral agreements that we have uh, between ourselves and uh, partners from groups like IFRAMER, the French research organization. I would also add that we are seeing partnerships with less developed, uh, underdeveloped countries where capacity building is mutually benef beneficial. So, uh, for example, we are just talking with our colleagues in Senegal right now about applying uh, a product that we developed with other U.S. federal agency partners called the National Integrated Heat Health Information System, NIHIS, as we call it, to uh, challenges they're facing in Senegal. And the basic way I would describe it is uh, being able to forecast uh, heat events and uh, the nature of it and intensity of it and, and timing of it is as much an issue for Senegal uh, as it is for Chicago. And so if we can develop a product like this and work with our colleagues in Senegal, in this case, uh, or for that matter, in the uh, large ocean developing states in the Pacific or the Caribbean, to talk to them about how something like our sea level rise viewer, and I'll, I'll make a plug for that on this uh, podcast right now. If you haven't looked at NOAA's sea level rise viewer on the web, take a look at it. It's, it's an interactive tool that allows you to look at what's going to happen to my coastline under different scenarios of sea level rise uh, with very specific kind of implications for, for areas, barrier islands. If we can take that same technology and apply it to our, our partners in the large ocean developing states in the South Pacific and the Caribbean, the benefit we get from that is that uh, we also seek to get data uh, from some of those partners that will help make the models even more effective. And let me go 180 degrees in the other direction. Um, you've come out of retirement. You'd, you'd work with the Navy, with NOAA, with the University of Oregon. Uh, retirement's supposed to be a fun Oregon time. Oregon State University. i got to catch oh. you on that one. I'll get in trouble with my <laughs> Oh, that's, that's right. Jane and others would not like that's that. That's right. You're NOAA. What's the most fun part of, and I don't, other than policy, you're a policy wonk. But when you want to go out in the field in NOAA, where do you have the most fun? Well, you just answer it. You go out in the field. So I'm I'm talking to you from my desk here within a stone's throw of the White House. I can see the Washington Monument. This is where I do most of my work. But I got to tell you that when I do travel around, I have a standing request that I go to uh, NOAA facilities, wherever I go. If I'm going to a conference, if I'm going to meet with a, um, uh, a community or an industry, I want to go to a sanctuary headquarters office. I want to Yay, go to a Estuary and Research Reserve uh, Manager's Office. I want to go to a weather forecast office. I have been so fortunate in this job. I mean, what other job can you have where you get to swim with humpback whales, all under permit, it was all under permit, uh, <laughs> where you get to fly through a hurricane, I did that on a P3, where you get to see the weather forecasters telling the, uh, all of the pilots in the Houston area, what weather they're going to face, uh, where you get to go see a rocket launch up front and personal. I mean, 
this is an amazing organization. I have an Air Force, I have a Navy, I have a satellite capability. But I got to tell you, most of what I just mentioned is the, the, the hard infrastructure. It's the people. The people in this agency and our contractors are the most passionate, engaged, uh, interested, and interesting that I've run across in my, my whole federal career. And as a previous NOAA employee, I take that as a compliment. You should. You should. Yeah. Well, I want to thank you. This has been a really great interview, and I know that you are very, very busy. Um, so thank you so much for being part of the Rising Tide Ocean podcast. And we will be following your progress and NOAA's progress. And we're delighted to have you in our leadership role for NOAA. Thank you so much. Vicki and David, thank you so much for all you do and for giving me the opportunity to share some of my passion and uh, interest in these issues. Rising Tide is a production of Blue Frontier, co-hosted by David Helberg and myself, Vicki Nichols-Goldstein, with support from Natasha Benjamin and Ellie Curlow. Rising Tide's editing services and technical support is provided by Studio Kate May, the theme song is written and performed by Ethan Kenbarg. You can find Rising Tide, the Ocean Podcast at bluefront.org or download it from Apple, Google, Spotify, or wherever you get your favorite podcasts. Off in the salty ocean, off where the waves roll free. The sparkling water rises, then crashes to the sea. Out amongst the breakers, you'll have no need to fear. It's true. It's the blue frontier, tear, tear, off in the salty ocean, off to the blue frontier. Sparky, come here, buddy. Sparky, there you are. Good boy, Sparky.